Greetings and salutations, everyone. Happy New Year. This is Volts for January 3rd, 2024. Decarbonizing a sprawling university system. I'm your host, David Roberts. Contemplate, if you will, the California State University System. It is the largest public university system in the country. By some accounts, the largest in the world, with more than a half million students and some 55,000 faculty and staff spread across a sprawling network of 23 campuses from the top of the state to the bottom. What if I told you that it was your job to decarbonize that entire system, the buildings, the energy infrastructure, the transportation, the food, the construction materials, all of it, and you had just over 20 years to do it, would you panic? Possibly short circuit? I'm pretty sure I would. As it happens, though, that is someone's job. Her name is Lindsay Rowell, and she is the Chief of Energy, Sustainability, and Transportation at the Chancellor's Office. She is on the hook for developing and implementing a plan to make the entire CSU system carbon neutral by 2045 with minimal use of offsets. You might think to accomplish something so vast, she would have a team of dozens and a budget of billions, but this is a public university system, so of course she doesn't. Instead, it's duct tape, bailing wire, and ingenuity. I had a great time talking with her about how to approach this unwieldy project. I think you will find her pragmatism and good humor refreshing. Every policy or regulation ultimately must be implemented by someone on the ground. This is what that looks like. All right, then, uh, Lindsay Rowell, welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. This is really interesting. <laughs> a lot of really interesting stuff here. I have a million questions to get through to ask you. But for starters, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the California State University system, which is different than the University of California system. Just, uh, getting, that, just getting that right up front. <laughs> Let's get that out of the way. We are so different. Sure thing. So California State University system, whether you realize it or not, you probably know it. <laughs> we are the largest public university system in the country by some metrics in the world, depending on who you ask and which day. So we have 23 campuses in the system spread across the state from the very tippy top up in Humboldt and down to the very, very bottom of the state uh, in San Diego. So we cover the entire space uh, in California and We've been educating students for about 150 years, mm. so we have really old universities. We also have a few satellite locations that um, offer you know, specialty coursework in nursing or business. And we educate about half a million students with about uh, 55,000 faculty and staff. So we are a huge, huge organization. And the schools, probably people are most familiar with without realizing that they are CSU schools are the California Polytechnic University at, at San Luis Obispo is one that a lot of folks don't realize is part of our system. Um, and we have three Cal Polys now. Humboldt is a Cal Poly and Cal Poly Pomona 
And then, of course, San Diego State is one of our biggest. Uh, San Diego, Fullerton, and Long Beach are three of our biggest institutions in, in the Southern California region. Are they all for your undergrad colleges or are there some vocational stuff or community colleges or? So no community colleges. Um, the community college system is a separate but friendly sister organization, um, a complete state organization. And the CSU is a four-year institution and graduate program. So we have master's and we do have educational doctorate programs at a few of the campuses. So four plus years. So 23 campuses. Yes. Across the state. That's a lot. So tell us then what laws you are like, what what are your mandated goals here? And are they mandated by the state of California or does CSU have its own separate goals? Or are these all just sort of state goals that you're implementing? So without getting too boring into the legislative dynamic of the CSU, we're sort of a quasi-state agency. So what that usually means is that most um, regulatory and legislative mandates are applicable to us where we're mentioned specifically. Um, mm. and part of that is due to the fact that we are um, called out specifically in the in the government code. So we're our own authority having jurisdiction, if you want a, uh, a technical term. Oh, um, and then we are self-support. A portion of our work is self-support through student tuition and, and um, endowments and so forth. So what that means is the CSU often sets more ambitious goals. I cannot think of anything off the top of my head where we, we are not at the very least meeting California's goals. As California gets more robust in its challenges towards climate change, I think the gap between California requirements and, and CSU requirements is closing. But yes, we align with the state in pretty much everything we do, either by intent or by statute. The broad framework I've been thinking about this in is, you know, I, I think a lot about policy and laws and politics and getting laws passed. But, you know, every law that passes, someone has to do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> someone has to. Someone ha yes. Someone has to implement it. And so I've just, you know, I've just been giving a lot of thought to like, who are the people out on the front lines implementing these things? So part of why I'm asking is what happens if you don't meet them? Like, are these self-imposed goals where if you don't meet them for whatever reason, you're just like, uh, you know, we swung and missed, bummer. Or is there some legal penalty if you don't reach them? Like what happens if you don't meet these goals? That's a fun question because my first <laughs> answer is the world ends. That's what happens. <laughs> so government, as you know, is generally a carrot sort of organization, not a stick organization. <laughs> yeah. I mean, punitive uh, response to not meeting legislation is usually reserved for the private sector and government mm. agencies are, you know, sort of pressured to respond to these mandates, but without, you know, punitive expectations if they don't make them. That said, though, and I'm going to offer a little prediction. This is Lindsay Rowell's prediction. This is not the CSU's prediction, <laughs> disclaimer, that because the intensity of the climate crisis just ever increases. And it's funny that we're doing this today, David, because we I just saw all the news of the massive waves and hitting uh, the California coastline. Right. Something Crazy. Else. I, I don't think I've ever seen that in my lifetime due to Pacific storms. And so what I predict is going to happen is there's going to be this sort of the incentive approach, right, where there's programs to support government agencies meeting these standards and goals. And then there'll start to be some, you know, hand slapping. Maybe there will be some <laughs> tightening of the, the purse strings, you know, with regard to funding that comes our way. 
And then I do think eventually there will be punitive damages in, in the form of carbon taxes or more direct funding cutoffs. Right. So sticks will show up eventually. I think they've got to. I mean, I, I think at some point you can't rely on folks to do this work voluntarily. Um, <laughs> and I think governments often have to choose between the two pennies that they have to rub together, as one of my <laughs> staff likes to say, which I think is a great metaphor. Well, actually, wait, we got to we got to rewind because we skip best what the goals actually are, right? CSU oh, sure. imposes its own goals. But what is what is the goal? I forgot to get that on record. here. <laughs> sure. That's actually that's a great one. We should talk about that. So the CSU, we have a new sustainability policy. And I say new, actually, I'm thinking that it's not so new anymore. So so we passed a new sustainability policy right after I came back to the CSU. So this is January of 2022. Mm-hmm. And the new sustainability policy, the overarching goal is carbon neutrality by 2045. And is that the same as the state? Yeah, that's the same goal as the state. Now, campuses have individual goals that might be more aggressive. Some are targeting as, as early as 2030, which is terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, but great to see that ambition out there. So that's the overarching goal. But within that, we've mostly what we've done is aligned with the ACHI STARS program. If you're not familiar with ACHI, it's the Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education, and they have a tracking system. Mm. And it sort of captures everything with regard to sustainability across the board in curriculum, in student basic needs, in diversity, equity, inclusion. So we've sort of aligned our policy to tackle all of those overarching umbrella criteria and then the various credits underneath those. So we have a lot of goals, but the overarching one that is sort of the point to it all is this carbon neutrality by 2045 as a system. And what is your, um, what's your job? (laughs) You have to do that? I explained that to my mother for like 15 years. (laughs) I still can't. We just had Christmas. What do you do for a living? Um, Basically, our role at the chancellor's office is to sort of advise and facilitate and implement these goals through policy, through program. So we do a lot of program development and more recently, a lot more advocacy. So you were talking about your interest in policy and legislation. We have gotten very heavily involved on the state and federal legislative side trying to express the need that the CSU has, inform the powers that be of the group of individuals that we serve, which is generally speaking, disadvantaged communities, underrepresented minorities, first generation college students. So as we sort of pursue all of this, our jobs kind of touch everything. We also do broad scale procurement. We do direct access energy procurement for 14 of the campuses, meaning we buy energy on the wholesale market and transmission and distribution to the utilities and then bundled service for the rest of the campuses. So we have all of that. We have, we do climate action planning for the campuses, water conservation, sustainable procurement, waste management, sustainable foods. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, this is the point of all this setup is to get this in readers' minds is that you are sitting in your office having to think about how to get 23 campuses, physical campuses across the state to carbon neutrality by 2045. Right. And I just like... When I start thinking about that, anxiety? it causes a pain <laughs> behind my right eye. Like, <laughs> yes, yeah, so I get my hands start to shake. To me, that's just like a huge, you know, maybe maybe you've grown accustomed to it <laughs> over time. But but to me, it just seems like such a huge sprawling thing. It kind of makes my brain short circuit. It does that to us. We spend a lot of time sort of 
<laughs> mentally advocating for each other. You know? <laughs> just going, we can do this. We can do this. We got to just fly forward. And, see, you know, it's eating the elephant just one bite at a time. Yeah, no kidding. So, yeah. So, like, the first thing I wanted to ask is just this seems like, among other things, it's going to take a lot of resources. It's going to take a lot of money to do this. So, I just, like, what is your budget? Are you – do you have <laughs> – the budget to achieve this to all legislators and decision makers <laughs> listening we do not <laughs> so we have about a seven billion dollar deferred maintenance backlog oh goodness yeah and that's not to you know woe is us sort of you know that's not that kind of a comment because the uc and the community colleges of the state at large this is this is something we deal with um you know they're chronically underfunded organizations as government organizations tend to be but no, I mean, that when we talk about the numbers needed for this type of work, especially decarbon, just electrification. So let's just electrification plants. The numbers aren't even real numbers, David. Like they're, <laughs> they're not numbers that you and I, like we hear them, you know, we hear <laughs> Jeff Bezos has, you know, $65 trillion or whatever. We, we know that's a figure. But when someone says to you, oh, just to electrify your central plant that serves a campus that occupies, I don't know, let's say 4 million square feet, is going to cost you, for starters, $350 million for the engineering and the basic like equipment change out. So that doesn't include things like switching everything over to the proper coils that can take the lower temperature hot water to circulate to buildings. That doesn't include any of the offsetting, you know, renewable energy and all of that that's required to actually get to net zero. That's an insane number. So when you start to think about that across a whole campus, the number is probably closer to 500 million, a billion per campus and about 20 campuses. Yeah, that's, it adds right up. Huge numbers. They're huge numbers. Yeah. So I guess that's kind of where I want to start is, you know, before getting into the details, just like, how am I not to conclude that this is just impossible, what they're asking you to do, <laughs> the scale of what they're asking you to do with the money you have available to do it? Like, how, how do you get around that basic? Let me give you some of my coping strategies. <laughs> I was going to say my coping strategies, the little things I hang on to as signs of, of progress. So first of all, so for the CSU, we have managed to keep our energy use level over the past almost two decades, despite adding thousands and thousands of square feet. So we're good at energy efficiency. And we've managed to do it with no direct, we have no direct budget assigned for that kind of work. So this is usually nickel and diming an operational budget. This is capturing incentives through utility programs or federal grant programs. So we do a lot of sort of little things where we chip away at the problem. And that actually is tremendously effective. Uh, one of our campuses, one of our energy managers, is, his name is uh, Kenny Seaton. And I can take his name in vain because we're good <laughs> friends and he's been around for as long as I have in the CSU. And one of the things he does so well is he'll do things like he'll have the $1,000 left on his, you know, his purchasing his pro card at the end of the month and he'll buy a bunch of lamps or he'll buy a bunch of meters <laughs> and he'll just keep them in his office until he's got a hundred of them and then he'll rally his team and be like, all right, guys, you know, this weekend we're going to go through and we're going to install all of these. He'll probably be the first campus to meet the net zero goals. And he's done it all without a dedicated energy budget. Amazing. So the answer to your question is so fluid. I think the federal government is finally starting to put some real money behind these efforts. 
Yeah, yeah, I was going to ask, like Ira, you know, uh, the inflation reaction is actually just showering money down on everything. Are you going to be able to, uh, you know, harvest some of that? Yeah, we're really, really trying. So that's a big part of our advocacy program. We've kind of got a two path, two pronged approach. One is sort of short term. What can we capture from the the Inflation Reduction Act, which includes stuff that we're kind of already doing centered around investment tax credits for renewable energy. It also includes the energy efficiency tax credits, things like that, that have traditionally not, we've had to capture through third party developers. The difficulty, and this is the second prong, the sort of longer term approach in making legislators understand what it's like to have this money on the ground is a couple of things. One, we don't have the upfront cash for this type of work. So when a campus has to make a decision, when this, they say, oh, 40% of this or, or 60 even percent of this renewables project, the solar project that we want to do is going to come back to us, we still have to come up with the 7 to $10 million up front to do the project. Right, because you get it back in tax. Exactly. Under taxes, right. And the problem that we have with that is that that money takes away from something else. When, the, when mm-hmm. there's no, and every time I sort of bring this question up with folks, let's just say the folks, um, <laughs> The question is is always sort of like, well, why don't you have money? <laughs> <laughs> like the question is always like, well, why don't you just take some money from somewhere else? It's like, no, you don't understand. That's like saying I have zero dollars in my checking account. <laughs> Write a check. And then like it, it doesn't work like that. Haven't some of the tax credits been made direct pay? They are, but they're still reimbursable. Mm. And so the issue with that upfront capital means that for us, it's typically not that much more advantageous for us to own one of a solar system is just the easiest example because power purchase agreements have been around for a million years. You know, when campuses do that, the benefit they have, I mentioned our $7 billion deferred maintenance backlog. Well, what does that tell you? We don't have the money to maintain things. So the last thing we need is to own a sophisticated piece of equipment right? that we may or may not have the staff who really knows how to manage it other than, you know, basic maintenance. We're gonna, still going to have to contract out to switch out the inverters every five, 10 years, whatever, as they degrade. So we haven't found that particular element of the program as directly advantageous. I don't want to disparage the program because I think it's incredible that this amount of money and effort is getting put towards this work. But we need bigger chunks of money available to really invest. Are you asking the state government? I assume you're you're up in uh, Sacramento yeah. nagging the relevant people. We're trying, um, you know, we're, we're working with legislators in, in Sacramento and in DC because a lot of this money, this amount of money has got to come from the federal level, right? The, the state has, California has a lot of money, but a lot of debt too. <laughs> it has a lot of debt and it has a, a huge population that it has to serve. And it's, you know, th- this is like, we need big federal dollars that are coming. And so just trying to help folks understand the actual set of circumstances when you, Someone needs to cut a check. (laughs) (laughs) That's what it comes down to. Yeah, what it comes down to, because we don't want to lose a lot of money through administrative processes. And the other thing with that that I think is really important to mention that I think does not get understood on the Hill, for example, is that when you have a rigorous process for these programs, the institutions that get left behind are the same institutions and the same people that get left behind for every other social 
economic climate program there is. It's the poor people with no resources. They don't have the money to contract for consultants to help them do these applications. Right, they don't have staff. They right, don't have expertise. Right. So the application process itself is a barrier. Yeah, yeah. So it's there needs to be some streamlining, and I think the federal government has heard that. But of course, when these statutes are written, they come with a lot of legal constraints that yes. they have to meet. So it's just tremendously complicated. It's not like someone on the Hill can wave a magic wand and just mm-hmm. go, oh, we'll just do it like this, because they also are responsible for taxpayer dollars, and they better make sure that if they're going to put a trillion dollars towards something, it's going to get spent where they said it's going to get spent. Right. Well, let's talk some nuts and bolts. So you said you have a $7 billion with a B deferred maintenance backlog. I'm wondering if there are things you can do that would serve the dual purpose of maintenance and decarbonization. In other words, could you try to dig out of that hole in a way that also serves your carbon goals? Yes, 100%. That is actually our approach and has been forever. So we really look at opportunities to dovetail energy projects with maintenance projects for the simple reason that if you're going to cut into a hard lid and send some tradesperson up there crawling around, like, why do that twice? Yeah, right. (laughs) Just the simple economics of that, of patching and painting and laying down equipment and bringing contractors out is a lot cheaper to do one time than multiple times. One of the things we like to say in our unit is that all maintenance is energy efficiency, right? (laughs) You know, you make pipes stop leaking, you make equipment more efficient, you change out fans that aren't working and dampers that are stuck and fix economizers. You're not only addressing your maintenance issues, but you are making things operate more efficiently. So we look at that approach. And luckily, this is an advantage that the CSU has with regard to how we spend our funding. You know, we have this operational budget and we don't have to say this is, you know, this money is going specifically for this project. I mean, we we make that designation ourselves in our office. So as long as we're capturing it completely, you know, for the purposes of the Department of Finance, the scope can be the scope. So there's a little bit of flexibility there to make sure that money is being spent where it's supposed to be spent. And I'm going to guess, as I was thinking about this, 23 campuses getting to zero carbon (laughs) My intuition was that buildings must be the big ticket item in terms of the heating and cooling, the amount of infrastructure required to heat and cool them, the construction budget itself, the embedded. Because, you know, one thing I, I thought was important to mention, I forgot to mention it earlier, but we should put this in the context of your goals, is that when you talk about carbon neutrality, you're also talking about scope three emissions. Oh, it's so scary. <laughs> which, yeah, that's the most mind blowing part to me. And I'm going to return to this <laughs> later because, you know, uh, you know, for readers who are not familiar, scope one and two emissions are sort of the emissions from the energy that you're directly using. But scope three is the emissions sort of embedded in the materials you use, the energy that people use to transport themselves to the campus, like all sorts of sprawling stuff that goes well beyond the campuses. So we'll return to that later. But I'm assuming that, am I right to say that buildings are sort of item one on the on the list here the, in terms of emissions? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the estimates from the Department of Energy are all kind of, you know, they, they shift a little bit. But generally, we say between 30 and 40% of our emissions in the United States are attributable to buildings, right? So 
Do you think that's true of your system too? Yeah. You know, I would say campuses are easiest to understand if you think of them as little cities, right? There's mm-hmm. big buildings with various operations. All in all, it's operating at a, on a curve that is similar to a city, right? They're like early morning to midday and some into late night. And then there's a variety of practices between labs or a library or an office, whatever that's happening in there. And then they're spread out, right? There's geography and, you know, landscaping and agriculture. There's, there's everything. <laughs> food. We're going to yeah, get that later too, but I want to, but I, but let's talk buildings. You must have some really old, you've been around a century. You must have some big old drafty buildings, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, Chico and San Jose have been around a very, very long time. Sacramento state just celebrated its 75th birthday. So so there's a few things that have gotten taken care of through sort of seismic up- updates. You know, um, after the 1989 quake, a lot of buildings across, not just for the CSU, but across the state really got retrofitted to accommodate, you know, the moving and shaking that is mm-hmm. our, our lovely state out here on the West Coast. And at that time, you know, windows, building skins, rooftops were replaced. Insulation was was making buildings, you know, more efficient as part of just a general practice of making them more safe. But that said, there's still buildings from the 1980s and even the the early 90s when, you know, we were still kind of getting hip to a lot of these sort of efficiency practices. So, yeah, there's a lot of just general work to do. And then on top of that, the big thing, obviously, is the distribution of energy around the system. Yeah, yeah. How are they, I mean, can you even generalize across 23 campuses? How are they generally heated and cooled? Yeah, I can actually generalize. So pretty much every campus, in fact, I can't think of one off the top of my head, has a core campus that's served by a central, like a district energy system. Oh, all of them? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Some of them have, you know, buildings that are, sort of off the loop based on where they are on the campus property or or who owns them, you know, if it was a public-private partnership or something like that. But yeah, generally speaking, we have a district energy system at every campus. Some of them have co-generation, although we had three campuses as part of the cap-and-trade program in California. We now are down to one. The other two have successfully decarbonized to get under the threshold for emissions to no longer need to be a part of that program. So that's really tremendous. And then we did have our one campus, Channel Islands, had a large 25 megawatt cogeneration system that was partnered with the Southern California Energy Utility for uh, grid stability and parity. So that's generally the situation. Some campuses have, you know, really sophisticated tunnel systems, which are awesome because it makes maintenance and protection systems really, really great. But of course... Oh, it just like shelters the infrastructure, basically? It does. And and it means everything runs underground where temperatures stay more stable, right. access. So so what are these district he- heating systems running on? You said there were three that were cogeneration. What are the rest of them? Are most of them natural, natural gas? gas are, there any, yeah. are there any geothermal? No, we have no geothermal. Um, mm. and in fact, didn't think that geothermal would really be a feasible option for us but have recently learned that some of the newer geothermal technology as it relates to absorption chilling could really maybe be something we use. So Yes, I'm familiar and excited about those <laughs> those developments. This is the best thing about this job, right? Like there, there's always something changing in the technology that you get to yeah, learn. Yeah. <laughs> so you have uh, lots of natural gas based district heating systems. Yeah. What do you do to a natural gas based district heating system to decarbonize it? Do you just switch out the natural gas boiler for a, a what? A big heat pump? What do you do? 
Yeah. So that's where sort of the individual campus dynamic is going to become a bigger factor, depending on how far they're moving. Heat. So, so our chilling is almost all electric. Most campuses have electric chilling, um, and that can be offset with renewables, which is fantastic. And then a lot of campuses are have and or are looking at thermal energy storage, allowing them to benefit from that. You know, so that that's been really exciting. Um, I love that work, and it's it's really just a good old fashioned energy project that's really solid. Can I ask what kind of uh, thermal storage people yeah, are looking at? Yeah, some of the campuses have like a two-phase ice system. Most of them have chilled water. Interesting. Uh, like water tanks, um, which works fantastic for, you know, 99% of the state. Humboldt is our little outlier up there and the, the place that never gets warm. And <laughs> Oh, right, right. The non-warm California campus. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the one non-warm. Or San Francisco, I guess, could be, you know. Yeah, I guess this should have occurred to me earlier, but I guess heating itself is not It's not a huge issue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not a big issue. Mostly you're dealing with air conditioning. Right. So the boiler replacement is mostly so, so that, you know, our temperate climate gives us a couple of benefits. One, the boilers that are out there on the market can serve our purposes if we can figure out a way to lower temperature and circulation without causing major issues with our distribution system, like leaking Victaulics and other valves in the system. And also, if we have coils throughout our units, our, our air handlers and units throughout the buildings that can function on those that lower temperature hot water, if they can't, then we're talking about, there's, you know, major engineering, you're having to take out, replace a natural gas boiler with an electric heating boiler can't get the water up to, uh, you know, circulating at 185 degrees, it's circulating at 145, maybe 155. And you've got coils in your units that maybe are only thresholded at a hunt, you know, 165. Mm. So all of that stuff has to get replaced. So if you switch out the boiler, there's a bunch of other re-engineering. There can be, you know, and for most of our campuses, it seems like that all of those secondary effects are needed. Although, I don't know if it keeps getting warmer, maybe we won't need to heat at all. <laughs> <laughs> Do all of your campuses have like energy people, managers, somebody yeah. whose job it is to? Yeah. So, I mean, aside from, you know, vacancies that occur through attrition and things like that, part of our requirement is that every campus have a have an energy manager. Mm. You know, they do a tremendous amount of work on this, but like the central plant, the district heating question, you know, with the the boilers, a lot of these campuses, their domestic hot water is tied to their district hot water, their heating hot water. Mm -hmm. So for them to just, they can't just, you know, turn off their boilers in the summer, for example. One of our mechanical review board members loves to, he's like, why are they running the boilers in the summer? It's like, well, you still got to have hot water in your labs and your laboratories. So sort of this like, well, I guess I would say lack of foresight, but it's not really that, right? Lack of crystal ball when <laughs> 100 years ago these systems were created. So if you can get the systems onto electricity, basically, you can call that carbon neutral by buying renewable energy certificates, basically, by vouchsafing that the electricity is clean. Is that the idea? Not allowed in the CSU. Oh, really? <laughs> so, oh, well, you guys are really playing on the hard setting then. Well, uh, it's... That's not true. It's not not allowed in the CSU. It's not allowed by Lindsay. Um, <laughs> so if someone else comes along and says, you're stupid and this is impractical, they, they, can, they can do Good it. Good God, woman, make things easier for yourself for once. <laughs> I know. This is a deep, dark hole that, that we've dug ourselves. But my feeling about offsetting is that 
our points of pride in the in the the CSU are that the community that we serve stays here. So our students tend to live and work in the communities where they go to school. Right. One in ten workers in California has a CSU degree. I feel that buying credits is a misrepresentation of our obligation to the people that we serve. And so our working policy now within my group and with the support of, you know, my team, our team, is that we will not purchase offsets until we get to that point where we just like can't, we don't have the money or that we're at that last five or 10% to get over the hump. And realistically, we'd like to keep it in the family, right? Where we, where we have a, a CSU fence line and we go, okay, if we're buying offsets, it's through a campus overgenerating, and we're accounting for it in another campus that can't. We might be talking about two different things, two things to keep distinct. One is carbon offsets. Sure. And one is renewable energy credits. And one is renewable energy credits. So offsets, I can see absolutely the case for not relying on offsets, I get. But for your electricity, if you don't rely on renewable energy credits, you are having to self-generate in real time the electricity you're using. That is what we're angling which is for. super hard. Yeah. So we want to, it is super hard. So yeah, sorry. I, I'm kind of conflating the two because they're, they're. You don't want to do either. Yeah. They're interchangeable in my mind. Um, so really what we want to see happen is that we exhaust all opportunity to generate on our campuses, mm-hmm. the offsets that we need and own those credits. Now the, the fact, I mean, <laughs> I was born at night, but not last night. I know <laughs> that that is a huge undertaking. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, So you must be, as part of this, you must be trying to install quite a bit of... Uh, VR. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, re- renewable energy on your campuses. Are VR. They- Tremendous amounts of renewable. And also looking at, like I said... Um, maybe an opportunity at ge- for geothermal, like large scale mm-hmm. geothermal that a single campus wouldn't be able to use, but we could sort of account for that again, like in the family. Right. Sort of sell it to the another campus, yes. more or less, kind of. I mean, surely if you have 23 campuses in California, some of them are sitting on top of some geothermal. Oh, for sure. Especially up north. And then it looks like down south and in the Imperial Valley, there's possibly some opportunities and we're starting to investigate that as how do we do a partnership on that in a way right. that we support it be nice to get like a real power plant sized power plant oh it'd be so cool anyone up there wants to write me a check <laughs> <laughs> yeah because everything else is just like little bits here and there so you i guess you're like covering all your roofs uh with solar panels parking yeah mostly parking right roofs are tricky just because of warranties and access and that kind of thing and the age of our buildings but we're really trying to do this to where the csu is in and of itself carbon neutral and net zero and we've set the goal that way knowing that getting to zero percent is is like that's not a real thing right like (laughs) functional zero (laughs) And knowing that we're we're probably going to hit a wall at some point where it's like we're constrained by finances, we're constrained by property, we're constrained well, yeah, land. I mean, yeah, just there's there's a whole bunch of potential hurdles there that might just put up a brick wall that we can't get through. Could you theoretically own a big solar field? That's not on one of your campuses, like somewhere else? Yeah, theoretically. I mean, some of the campuses, uh, Cal Poly Slow has actually done that through the ResBec program for their PG&E. They've put in a, 
a large, you know, now for the purposes of this discussion, don't quote me because I can't remember if the <laughs> campus actually owns the property or if it's a, a lease agreement, but it's off the campus proper. They've mm-hmm. got a large system that they installed to serve, you know, like their equine center and their ag center that are off, you know, the campus grid, basically. Is there a campus that is generating as much electricity as it is using yet? There's a couple campuses that are close. So um, Long Beach is actually pretty close. I think Fullerton is pretty close. Sac State is going to be pretty close. Several of the campuses are under contract for solar and microgrid systems that will are going to get them close, you know, at the very least going to position themselves for meeting those those longer term goals. Yeah. I do see now why a, a geothermal power plant would really come in. That'd be come cool. In handy for those. <laughs> so because it'd come in super handy. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of microgrids, uh, I love me some microgrids and campuses are sort of the, kind of the iconic, oh, they're you know, place to do it. You have control of the whole system. So are, do you have uh, uh, microgrids, islandable microgrids set up anywhere yet? So we don't have islandable microgrids. The regulatory environment in California to actually come off grid is extremely, I'll say complicated. <laughs> um, you could do a whole show on that, David, actually. Mm-hmm. It would be really interesting to hear how people characterize that situation. So but we're really approaching it right now through the lens of resiliency because since the Paradise Fire in Northern California in 2017, the public safety shutoffs that the utilities are allowed to enact to protect the grid during inclement weather has affected campuses pretty severely. They've lost power for five, six, seven days. Yeah. And it occurs to me that you must have like some labs and, you know, stuff oh, yeah. where, where, where like a, a blackout is a big deal. Yes, that's very true. We have labs, we have vivariums, we have critical ops, we have archives, all kinds of stuff that needs to be protected. And obviously we have generators, but no one designs a generator to run for 10 days. You know, right. <laughs> yeah. So even on e-circuits, it's, it's still more than we're capable of, of supporting over a long period of time. So we're looking at a lot of this as opportunity to reconfigure our electrical system so that only the appropriate operations are served by emergency circuits and that we have battery backup that offers some longer term. And then also, you know, at least in the interim, pair it with our, some campuses have fuel cells, all of them have generators. So use that microgrid operation for a resiliency purpose, not so much for islanding right now. So is there a campus currently where if the grid goes down for one of these planned outages, it can stay on? Is that like up and running anywhere or is this just no, a, gleam, no a gleam in your would, eye? So, well, I guess I should ask a clarifying question. If you mean, are there any campuses that could continue business as usual? Well, how about continue some modified, reduced version of business as usual? Like, so their vivariums, right? And labs can stay going, let's say. Yeah. So every campus can do that to a degree, right? So every mm-hmm. campus has enough backup. But I wouldn't say, I'm going to infer what you're asking and basically say, could you go to like minimal operations where some classes or some research? Yeah, could- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, basically the answer to that is no, there's enough backup generation to allow enough time so that a faculty member, for example, could make alternative arrangements for 
you know, they're critters that they're researching somewhere or something like that, or make a, make a note, you know, on their data that there was a disruption. Like there's, there's enough time to kind of get your affairs in order. Right, 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 right. As opposed to, okay, we're going minimal ops and this one room is going to be, be available. Ideally, we'd have something like that. Although I would say, interestingly, the pandemic has changed that, right? Our ability to pivot to an online yeah. pedagogy has like, wow, like suddenly we can do that. So yeah. a very few classes that can't just go, okay, we're going to catch up on labs when we get through this outage in a few days. So beefing that up, it seems to me it was mostly about installing more solar and more batteries. Are you yeah. installing, a, are you just going nuts on storage? We are. We're we're really trying. It's it's difficult because again, we're doing that through, you know, third party cotton you know, power purchase agreements. But we have a few campuses actually that are under contract right now for solar and battery. So kind of the the building blocks of their microgrids, and then we'll look towards you know expanding into microgrid controllers and all of the secondary electrical work. Actually, we have quite a few. Uh, several of the Sonoma State has broken ground on theirs. Cal Poly Humboldt. Um, Cal State San Marcos, they're all moving forward with their microgrid plans. And that's just to name a few. Final electricity slash building question is, since you have these semi-self-contained campuses, can they serve as virtual power plants? Can they sell grid services? Is that even like up and running yet in California? Like, is that doable yet? Or is that something you have on the horizon? I'm so glad you asked that question. I'm super duper duper excited about virtual power planting. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I got. I need to do an episode just just on them. Yeah, yeah. You really should. I because I'm just learning about this. But we're yeah. So the answer to your question is yes, no, yes, yes. So <laughs> so it's not happening yet in California. There's definitely some regulatory hurdles here. There used mm-hmm. to be sort of the virtual net metering and aggregated net metering programs in place with the utilities that have gone away over the time or morphed into different things. And so there's some regulatory issues to deal with there. But my team and I have really been talking about the coordination between our microgrids and our thermal energy storage as a real opportunity to virtual power plant among our campuses and also as a strategy, right? Demand shift. Yeah, yeah. Demand shift and also as an opportunity as we're talking about these sort of what do we do with the campuses that can't put renewable energy, right? Like, are there, can we help support each other in this sort of regional way? Right. So we're just in our infancy sort of investigating this, but so excited about the possibilities. Yeah, I wonder, and maybe things aren't far enough along for you to know this, but I don't have any sense of what the scale could be on that. Like, can you, would you imagine being compensated for grid services? in your various campuses being a real like substantial income stream or is this more like a a frill <laughs> do, do you yeah. know what i mean like how are you thinking about it so my first response to that is i don't know but right, my right. second response is based on california's history with how it operates within the confines of utility regulation and with our new nem 3.0 requirements I cannot see this being an income stream. That's me and my crystal ball. I just, I would be very surprised. But I would say maybe the benefits would be more like grid stability is good for everybody kind of a thing. Yeah, VPPs are great just just for their own. Their own merits, right. Just (laughs) purpose. So 
one final question about buildings, which is just something that occurred to me as I was thinking about this is, are you out building new anything, new campuses or new, or is it like, is this, because I would imagine building new stuff that works for these goals is a lot easier than retrofitting stuff, but are you even doing any new stuff and is sort of, um, you know, tightening requirements for new stuff a big, a big piece of this? Yeah, I think we're in an interesting time for that. I mean, we are building new buildings as, you know, in alignment with our, you know, master plans for campuses. Post-COVID, though, you know, I think there's a need to analyze the asset and real estate needs. Um, mm. You know, are they the same as they were? You know, what is the, what is the next generation going to expect with regard to their on-campus experience versus their online experience? And then also, you know, looking at population growth in California, which has slowed, do we look at building new institutions to serve communities that are, you know, rural or, or have a long commute to a four-year institution? Or does that not make much sense? Do we do satellites or do we do remote learning centers? So I think there is a lot of uncertainty there, not in a bad way, but just in a, geez, everybody, this was a global pandemic. What a weird thing to have happened. And now it's brought up all these questions. <laughs> and then I think the other thing is there's a very real understanding among our capital team of which my group is a part that the most sustainable building is the building that's already built. Yeah. So all of the folks that I work with, my peers in the executive leadership sort of group are very aware of this. And instead of being like, well, we're going to just do business as usual. Everybody's really cohesively talking about, do we need to rethink our strategy? Do we need to start thinking about what buildings can be saved? How can we reduce waste? All right. Infill, uh, right? Versus yeah. versus sprawl. <laughs> yeah. That risk is you know the liability that we have, the further out we spread our boundaries in terms of our assets is, is real, right? That's all this stuff, space that has to be insured. And then we've got space that, you know, if it's not serving its function anymore, do we really need to demo it or should it be retrofitted? So I, I think that's a conversation we're having. And I think we're probably going to be seeing maybe a shift in how we evaluate whether a new building needs to be constructed versus an old building being rehabbed. Interesting. Let's talk a little bit about scope three. Uh, so no, <laughs> no. So, so for any, I mean, honestly, for any institution, this it's the scope three is a little bit overwhelming and baffling, but for something like campuses, like you say, they are little cities. Mm -hmm. So scope three involves a lot. The first question is just, do you feel like you have reliable tools to measure and assess scope three emissions? Because the whole field around scope three emissions seems a little bit nascent to me. Like, what's your take on that? Yeah, I would 100%. I was just going to say, no, I don't feel like we have the tools. And I would go farther to say that anyone that tells you that they do is full of it. People are working on them, allegedly. They're but. trying. Everybody, it's, you know, the colleagues, the folks that, that I work with, like we all sit around the tables going, what are you guys doing with scope three? What are you doing with scope? Or something that they call it scope four. Because we've got scope three, like transportation and scope four is the embodied carbon piece. Uh. But, or scope three A, whatever. Um, <laughs> and everybody is just going, how do I... Where do we, what do we, like, where, yeah. where do you even start? Where do you begin? It's so massive. The transportation piece is getting a little bit better configured. 
although I think the definition of what is our responsibility and what is other people's responsibility and how do we avoid double counting or not counting is still a question, but we're trying to do better on sort of our programmatic elements of that related to alternative transportation and fuels and that kind of thing. Well, I mean, if any student at any one of your 23 campuses drives their car to the campus, that's us. Boom, you've got some scope three emissions there. So you have to theoretically get all however many thousand students you said, some yeah. mind boggling number. You have to get them all to the campuses without driving. That alone is like, how on earth do you do that? I mean, I know you can do some carpool programs or, but like you don't control. No, that's public transit. You don't control zoning right, decisions. Out, you, boundary responsibility. Yeah, yeah. So, well, it's the same thing with embodied carbon, right? Like I don't yeah. control how lumber is milled and exactly. where it comes from. This was my other question, which is even if you could measure the amount of embodied carbon coming in through building materials, say, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a source of carbon-free building materials even available, available right. to you. Right. So where we are with this now, which is to say, <laughs> not far. <laughs> so there are some firms like working on sort of software tools to help start tracking this. The state of California does require environmentally preferable purchasing or reporting on construction materials and things like that. So we do do that. The cynic in me is like, is this even close to accurate? Like, is this even accurate enough to like merit tracking it? Right, right. But the optimist in me is like, okay, well, we got to start somewhere. So tracking what you're using is a place to start. And then at least you can put rules of thumb to it, right? right like right. how many pounds of steel do we use? How many pounds of lumber? How many pounds of concrete? And as a rule, regardless of where it comes from, what is the carbon impact of those materials? Even though, right, the specifics of where they come from and how they're milled and all of that stuff has an impact, it at least gives you like some framework to start from. Because where it is right now is just like pulling numbers out of the damn sky. Like, <laughs> yes. just don't know. There's a lot of dreamed up numbers in that general, in that general vicinity. I mean, for organizations like mine or ours, it's not mine. Right. Do you even have the staff? Do you right. have the staff to do this? Exactly. Like the administrative and transactional costs associated with tracking that information is, I couldn't even begin to. You could have someone in every unit for every project doing only that, only that. Yeah. There's a really, seems like a place where you really badly need better tools, like standardized off the shelf. Very, very much. I, I feel like this is a supply chain matter, right? Like ideally, but because it doesn't, it doesn't work to rely, like you just, we have to try and take responsibility on our own, right? We can't force industry to make these adjustments. Yeah. It does seem like though, it, especially in scope three, you are to some unavoidable degree dependent on developments that you have no control over, right? Like what the state does or even what the federal government does. Right. So at this point, it's more about just understanding what we use. When we feel like we can track that with some degree of accuracy, we'll feel like we've made a tremendous success. We are including scope three as part of our carbon reduction. Goals. That's crazy. That's just crazy. <laughs> so so crazy. What, when you, when you. I'm going to retire before all of this. <laughs> <laughs> In your mind's eye, when 2045 rolls around and CSU is carbon neutral, how are people getting to school? Like what, what does the zero carbon 
just the transport alone, just the transport angle alone, what would it look like for that to be truly carbon free? No more gas cars, I guess. Yeah. Like, no more gas cars on the street. We have the best chance of it in California, right? Like so right. we're moving away from, you know, petrol, as it were, um, <laughs> in California. So my thought is that if things were to go my way, it'd be a combination of things, obviously, where it's, you know, we have good public transit, we have good programs for students, you know, shuttle systems and stuff that aren't necessarily related to the, the community programs, regional transit and things like that, that we have a little bit more control over. And then electric vehicles and mobility devices, which have their own issues. I mean, we've got concerns related to lithium ions and, you know, everything is a rabbit hole. But <laughs> once you scope three it, all of a sudden EVs are not as as uncomplicated. Exactly, as they... exactly. And, and I think the other combination with that is, do we have students coming to school when they don't need to be? Right. Right. Like are students coming to school for classes where they really don't need to be? Could you be doing this class once a week instead of three times a week and the rest of the class is held online? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know that that is the answer, but I think all of those avenues need to be investigated so that we understand what students need, what they want, and how we can meet these goals while giving them both of those things. You know, the college experience that they want and the education they need. Think about how much reduction that would be to just have someone for one class going, well, I don't, I only have to come to campus one day a week. Yeah, that's a, an easy lever to pull for sure. Yeah, for sure. You know, one can imagine ways of decarbonizing that do not serve resilience, that leave campuses sort of brittle or vulnerable. Talk a little bit about just the effects you've seen of climate and severe weather on your, on your campuses and, wh and how you're thinking about resilience as part of decarbonization? Well, so this is such a hard question because we just had fairly recently in California a hurricane. Have you heard of this? <laughs> no. This is a new weather phenomenon for oh, us. Oh, good. How fun. Um, our campus San Bernardino out in the Inland Empire was hit by torrential rains from a hurricane at the same time there was an inland earthquake along the So it was like they, they had, and they had like four inches of water on their gym. Like, it, you know, and they're out in the, I mean, what we would refer to as kind of the, the low desert. Like they're, they're not in a place where you think of right. flooding exactly. You definitely don't think of being impacted by a hurricane. <laughs> And then they also suffer the wildfires from the Santa sweeping through the valley there. So, so they're the poor campus. We use them as an example. <laughs> and there's such good sports about it too. But so there's that. And then, like I said, we had a couple of days ago. Now I've got phone calls out to our campuses at San Jose to see if their Moss Landing Institute was impacted by these waves coming in off the coast. You know, they've got research right up, butted up against the ocean where they, you know, um, impacted by that. So, Wildfires and public safety shutoffs are are the main the main impacts, right? And then of course drought across California because this is a desert state, most of it, and we go through decade long periods of drought. One of the things we're trying to do is we've developed a resilient infrastructure guidelines model. So it's a tool to allow campuses when they're planning projects and capital construction to think about their designs in terms of the resiliency hazards, potential climate hazards, and resiliency impacts their campus might face 
as a result of where they are geographically, their age, the uh, condition of their infrastructure, so on and so forth, and then use that for those projects, but then also for their utility master planning efforts and their critical infrastructure reports to kind of help prioritize how they should be looking at their, their infrastructure upgrades. Because if you're a campus that has been experiencing drought, you're not necessarily going to think about prioritizing your stormwater plan, right? right? Stormwater <laughs> infrastructure. But if you don't and you find out that three other, you know, institutions in your immediate area have had massive millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of damage and shutdown resulting from, you know, water intrusion because they didn't have a good stormwater infrastructure, maybe you need to be thinking about that a little bit more. That needs to be bumped up the priority list perhaps a bit more. So that's one of the tools we're using. It's actually pretty sophisticated and we've been working on it for a couple of years. And then it's intended to stay kind of a living document because the climate is changing. And so <laughs> Indeed. universities are changing. Yeah, that's a moving, that's a truly a moving target. I've burned up all my time, so I don't have time to talk about food. But obviously, I feel like I should at least mention it because among all the many other things that you have to worry about once you're talking about decarbonization and scope three and everything else is, is food incoming, food service, food waste. Could you give us like a one or two line <laughs> how you're thinking yeah. about food uh, answer? I can summarize food by saying it is almost as difficult as scope three. Interesting. Yeah. You know, we should talk about this at another time. We can get into some of this, David, but I, it is tremendously difficult. It's another thing that crosses those boundary lines. And then the one thing that I think people in your audience definitely will not know is that the way most, this is true of most universities, not just ours, is that the way food works on their campuses is through auxiliary services, meaning they have contracts for food providers through their 5013C. Right. So once again, you're dependent on you someone need else. someone to provide carbon-free food service or else what can you do, right? Right. I mean, and then you've got all the safety policies, right? Because we don't want, we spend a lot of time on the on the food waste side too, going, okay, mm -hmm. we have students who are food insecure and you're going to throw away all this food from right. some box lunch thing. Can we give it away? And you got to go through risk management for all that. Like there's just a, you know, it, like, like everything else, it's just a rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> And that is, oh man, that is a tough one. Interesting. Yeah. It's something that I, I think, I, I, you know, my sort of like energy nerd world crowd doesn't think about a ton. Same with kind of agriculture. Yeah. It's really interesting to see how they cross over. Final question here is just, it is, as I said earlier, it is <laughs> sort of, I don't know, like amusing and poignant to me to imagine you sitting in your office <laughs> thinking about <laughs> basically like how to transform a decent chunk of the state uh, in the next few years. So you've been given this mandate now, which, you know, thanks a lot. So what when you think about California politicians now and regulators, what do they not get? And what like if you had to sort of prioritize a couple of things that you would ask from them besides money, like give me some money, obviously, but yeah. in terms of like law or regulatory support, are, are there a couple of like top line items that would make your life easier? Yeah, I think the government really needs to facilitate partnerships a bit more. Mm -hmm. I don't know that any one organization like ours or even the UC, which is, you know, obviously a huge and well-recognized world-renowned organization, has an easy time developing relationships with nonprofits with commercial interests, with supply chain groups, 
And those partnerships are imperative. And I think the thing that frustrates me with the money question is I the money is out there. We know it exists. Like the actual physical pieces of paper are available. <laughs> and I tend to think that there's probably a lot more interest among the community, be it business, be it private philanthropy, anywhere, that they would like to know how they can help, how they can be a part of this. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like the government does anything to try and facilitate those partnerships. And so we're all sort of feeling around in the dark in this room trying to find who <laughs> are. And then also, you know, not waste each other's time, right? Do I have what you want? Do you have what I want? You know, there is some organization that could happen here that I think would be really, really helpful. Right, or not duplicating efforts. It seems like there's yeah, lots. Exactly. There's got to be lots of big organizations that need roughly the same things. Exactly. You need, right. And there's services. You know, there's firms that do this kind of work. Certainly, that have a lot of these contacts. But for organizations like the community colleges and the CSUs, mm -hmm. we don't have the funding to go out and hire people to for these like sort of theoretical connections. So I would really like to see, other than the money, don't forget the money, but <laughs> other than the money, sort of that, and then also related to these programs, just streamlining, you know, what do you as a legislator and your aides and, you know, the people within the organizations over whom you are responsible, what do they really need to see? Are we doing reporting? Are we, you know, punching numbers? Are we investing time and staff and money in information that you're never going to look at is never going to get verified. Right, right. Um, it's not useful to anybody. And can that be simplified? Yeah, that's a, a lot of just, just about, it seems like communication between legislators and regulators and people like you who are out in the implementation swamp. Uh, right. Uh, better communication would be a great thing. Yes. Thank you so much, Lindsay. This is just fascinating. Like, uh, it's really, you know, like decarbonization in general is just a giant puzzle. <laughs> and, and every little piece of it is a puzzle. But this is like, you've got your hands on a really big <laughs> piece of the puzzle. So I'm sure it feels uh, overwhelming and slightly ridiculous what you're being asked to do. But it, <laughs> But I will say it comforts me to know that there are people like you out there, you know, really doing the ground, the block and tackle work of, of making this happen. Yes. It's comforting to me to know that there's people like you out there spreading the word that this work is going on. Oh, good. Well, we're, uh, we've, we've comforted one another yes. in the, in the storm. It's the marginal success of the day. <laughs> Beautiful. All right. Thanks so much, Lindsay. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad free powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much and I'll see you next time.